Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Today we're going to be talking about chronic rhinitis, including allergic and non-allergic rhinitis. My name is Dr. Jessica Tattersall and I'm from Sydney Allergy Clinic. So chronic rhinitis is a very common um, problem in Australia, affecting about 30 to 40 percent of the population. It has a significant impact on the quality of life of about 50 percent of sufferers. Now to define chronic rhinitis, you need to have inflammation of the nasal mucosa. So rhinorrhea is a symptom as well as sneezing, blockage and itch. Symptoms generally need to last over 12 weeks and they range from mild to severe. There is a strong association with asthma and that doesn't depend on whether it's allergic or non-allergic, both have a predisposition to, um, to asthma um, comorbidity. So the four major types of rhinitis include infectious. Now infectious is acute rhinitis, which is self-limiting, may mostly viral induced. Um, you get the typical symptoms of discolor, discharge, as well as nasal crusting and secretions. They can be, these infections can be more severe in those who do suffer allergic rhinitis, especially at times of high um, allergen exposure like the pollen season. But today we're going to concentrate on the chronic rhinitises, and that will include allergic rhinitis, which is the type 1 IgE-mediated hypersensitivity uh, to airborne allergens, mainly house dust mite, pollens, pets, and molds. We'll also talk about non-allergic rhinitis. Now these are not IgA-mediated problems. They can be um, inflammatory, but also can be neurogenic in pathway. There's many different subtypes, which I'll touch on in the talk. Now, complicating things, patients can have both, and that's what we call a mixed rhinitis. That's allergic plus non-allergic rhinitis, and that's very common, affecting about 60 to 70% of people who have a history of allergic rhinitis in their younger years. So let's start with allergic rhinitis, which has been talked about a lot. We know it's common in Australia and roughly one in four people will suffer from allergic rhinitis. It has an early onset, generally before the age of 20, the patient will be sensitized to one of the um, particular um, aeroallergens like house dust mite or pollen, and this will generally onset somewhere in their later adolescence to teen, um, teen years up until 20. They have the classic symptoms of repetitive sneezing itch of the nose, the palate, the throat, the ears, some anterior, anterior dripping or rhinorrhea, blockage, and ocular symptoms. And these mostly will be induced by house dust mite, pets, molds, and pollens. However, it's really important that we pick up on the other presentations, which is um, sleep disturbances, especially in children, irritability and behavioral disorders, as well as fatigue. Two out of three of these patients will not contact their doctor, so it's important we pick it up when they, come, when they do present. Because with rhinitis, the nose is just the tip of the iceberg. The problems that can be associated are very important to also consider. This is really important that your adult allergic rhinitis patients may be presenting as chronic, uh, sorry, may be presenting as acute recurrent sinus infections. They come into the office roughly four or five times a year when they have an acute infective um, rhino, uh, sinusitis with the typical symptoms of uh, discharge and pressure buildup. What they're not coming to you for is the periods in between this when they're 
going through packets of antihistamine to control their, their allergic disease. So these patients have what I like to call bad plumbing. Their nose isn't working very functionally, they get a, a secondary insult like a viral infection and the plumbing backs up and they're left with their symptoms of chronic, um, oh, sorry, of acute pain and pressure and discharge. In kids, they can get hypertrophy of their tonsils and adenoids, as well as many ENT infections, including in the middle ear. Obviously, ocular symptoms can be quite troublesome. And once again, to reiterate the association with asthma. Really important to pick up is the child with sleep disordered breathing due to allergic rhinitis, and sleep disordered breathing can, can um, include anything from primary snoring through to obstructive sleep apnea, can also get dental malocclusions and um, hypogrowth of the maxillary bone due to the sleep disordered breathing. They do present often from their dentist with a high arch palate requiring to spreading of their teeth um, uh, due to this ongoing mouth breathing that they've had overnight. This is very important to pick up. As well as the cognitive issues that are associated with chronic allergic rhinitis. There's loss of function both with work and schooling, concentration, poor sleep, and fatigue. And this obviously can generally um, have a great impact on their quality of life. So once we think we have the diagnosis of allergic rhinitis, we need to classify it. So generally, if intermittent or persistent, does it happen all the time or is it once in a while? And those symptoms, are they severe or are they moderate to severe? Now notice in the moderate to severe category, it's not about how many times that you sneeze or how many boxes of tissues you use, it's about how it affects your quality of life. Abnormal sleep, impairing your daily activities, work and school being uh, dis disturbed by this problem, and the symptoms are quite troublesome. Because you can be intermittent and severe, and you can be persistent and mild. Intermittent mild, I don't think we see very often. Those are the people who find their way um, through their symptoms just in pharmacy. But everybody else we know um, of that, um, we, c we know somebody who's presented with those symptoms. Now, the management I'm going to highlight here because pretty much everybody but the intermittent mild, the first line treatment is a combination intranasal corticoid with an ant, um, antihist, topical antihistamine. These have become the first line treatment option for everybody from persistent mild through to persistent moderate severe because of their superior profile. While this was changed in 2020 from the monotherapy of intranasal glucocorticoids because of the superior uh, performance they have in, ra in uh, randomized controlled trials. The only contraindication to starting someone on a combined therapy first line is the cost. And that's, nothing t uh, that's not an insig insignificant um, cost. It is quite an expensive uh, medication to start someone on. So you need to make sure they will, uh, will be able to cover that cost or else monotherapy is better than nothing. And it surely is better than oral antihistamines alone. Notice the first line therapy for oral antihistamines is pretty much just intermittent and mild. And those, again, are people we tend not to see in practice because they're quite well um, treating themselves from pharmacy. Also note that aside from the mild patients, both the moderate severe, whether it's intermittent or persistent, are candidates for immunotherapy. And that should always be considered in someone with troubling symptoms. So just to reiterate, the best choice is an intranasal glucocorticosteroid uh, with a topical antihistamine in those patients over 12 years old. The two on the market at the moment are Rialtris and Dimista. Dimista is fluticasone with 
azelastine and rialtrus's metazone with olipatidine. Now, there's a lot of confusion about which is different, which is better, what the differences are, and truth be told, they're, they're very quite, much quite similar. But there are a couple noticeable differences which might make it easier for you to, uh, to decide which is best prescribed for your patient. So for the first thing I want to highlight on this um, comparison of product information is the dose. So both Dimista and Rialtris are quite comparable in price. So when you look at the dose for Dimista being one spray twice a day, you know, with four sprays a day, and Rialtris is two sprays, both nostrils twice a day, you're using double the amount of Rialtris. So you will go through the bottle faster. However, the uh, alternative view of that, the patients that you have that tend to be a bit drier or crustier from using nasal sprays might benefit from the half dose of Rialtris. And if you look at the dose of Rialtris, it's 25 micrograms of the mimetazone, where your over-the-counter Nasonex mimetazone is 50 micrograms. So you are getting the same dose by using the spray as directed, eight doses a day. However, you might just have the patient that gets away better with having that half dose, so something to consider. The other thing to consider is the taste. Anyone who has had a patient try Dimista that hates it and refuses to use it because of the taste will know this. In this um, product information, it doesn't look like the percentage is quite high. However, clinically, we all know patients that refuse to use the Dimista because of the taste. In a way, this is a trick question because really, you shouldn't taste your nasal spray. So the first thing you should test check is technique and make sure the patients aren't spraying it in their nostril and taking a massive sniff in, which means all the medication just wasted down the back of the throat. I like to teach a technique that involves sprays with gentle tilting of the neck to get the spray to go all around the side lateral wall of the nose and then a gentle sniff at the end if required. The other thing to note is the glass bottle of Dimista. If you have someone who keeps their um, nasal spray by their bedside table on a carpeted floor, no problem. But it, once you have one patient who spills an entire bottle of Dimista on the floor of their bathroom tiles um, right after they bought that forty-some dollar bottle of medication, this would become a problem. So the plastic bottle of Rialtris is a good choice for people who travel or do need a little bit more flexibility of where they're taking and carrying their nasal sprays. Other than that, they're both good products. I've used I've used them both personally in my clinical rooms, and have patients who prefer one or the other. They're both um, great for first-line choices, and um, you just have to think of any of those little differences making a difference in how you prescribe. If you're looking for more information on allergic rhinitis, ASCIA, which is the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, have a great patient, um, sorry, health professional information sheet, which describes pretty much what I just went through and more. There's also an e-training component that you can go through, which explains a lot more with question and answers. So now we get to the slightly more complicated non-allergic rhinitis. So the di this is a diagnosis of exclusion. There's an absence of a specific um, serum IgE test in the blood and the skin prick test is negative. And you've also ruled out that it's not infective. Now here, the history is very, very important because there could be removable causes at play. There's many phenotypes we'll touch on, including senile, hormonal, occupational, drug-induced, and gustatory. However, the very most common um, type you will see in practice is the idiopathic. Now, all of these can have an inflammatory or a neurogenic pathway. And here we can see the typical symptoms of non-allergic rhinitis being very similar to allergic rhinitis with runny nose, sneeze, and nasal congestion, but a little less itch. And on one side, you can see the IgE-mediated allergic reaction causing those symptoms with the typical mast cells and histamines. 
causing the acute symptoms. And then on the neurogenic pathway, we see how the parasympathetic, the um, sympathetic, the adrenergic, and the cholinergic nervous systems at play in, causing, in driving these symptoms. So this is also known um, in the world of rhinology as nasal hypersensitivity, non-allergic, non-infectious rhinitis, vasomotor rhinitis, and neurogenic rhinitis. They tend to have an older onset. These patients don't get their nasal symptoms till generally over the age of 35. There is a slight theory that there is a more of a female predominance. There's generally not a history of allergies in the past, and there's no family history of allergy. They have to, to classify, but you have one or more of the following symptoms, sneeze, postnasal drip, congestion, and rhinorrhea. Um, nasal itch, as mentioned, is, is less common, and I highlighted postnasal drip because this tends to be one of the primary um, uh, presenting symptoms. So I'm not going to go into the very complex um, neuropathic ways at play here that are thought to be at play at any rate, but just to know that there are inflammatory types and there are non-inflammatory types. And it's a very complex system where the, the, the several different systems can be actually interacting with one another. So we're going to keep, try and keep it simple and talk about the difference between the non-inflammatory and the inflammatory types. So senile rhinitis is a good non-inflammatory example. This patient is generally over the age of 70. They have no other symptoms at play besides profuse runny nose. So there's no itch, there's no sneeze, they don't get blocked, it just runs like a tap. Now this is thought to be caused by dysregulation of the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And this is where this one med medication called ipotropium bromide has its day because it works brilliantly to stop the running tap. It will not cover the other symptoms of sneeze, blockage, or itch, so it will be not no good in the patients with those other symptom profiles. But in the senile rhinitis elderly patient, this will work very well. It also works well for the gustatory, for the person who has a runny nose, only when eating spicy foods or, or other inducing foods, not associated with blockage and not associated with sneeze or itch. Now the inflammatory type does take um, that more type, a TH2 type um, sensitivity response without it being IgE mediated. And these are the ones that will respond well to steroids, as well as the combined steroids, even better. So the triggers that you see for non-allergic rhinitis, as we touched on with the um, gustatory and the spicy foods, but you also get um, ones like smoking, like cigarettes, occupational, and you've got in occupational, you've got the inflammatory as well as non-inflammatory causes. So the inflammatory being wheat flour and bakers, scientists who work with um, lab animals, and uh, health workers who wear, use latex or an, around latex. And then the non-inflammatory ones, which are ke more chemicals and fumes, like red, people who work in plastics industry, um, painters, uh, especially spray painters, and resins um, in resin factories. Drugs can also cause a response. Um, cocaine is um, obviously known to cause a, a, a rhinitis uh, when mis misused. and ACE inhibitors can cause a rhinitis, and of course, decongestant when overused as well can cause a rhinitis. Hormonal um, imbalances can also cause uh, chronic rhinitis, and the typical um, example of that is a rhinitis of pregnancy, which goes away once the baby is born. Again, important to find out if there's a removable cause in any of those previous symptoms. But by far, the most common kind you, um, of rhinitis you're going to see in, is the idiopathic. Now the cause here is unknown. 
is a bit of a hypothesis whether there's some chronic inflammation at play, as well as some of the neural symptoms being dysregulatory and activation of the C, and, um, C sensory fibers in the nose. Hyperreactivity is very common in these patients, and their common triggers they complain of setting off their symptoms include things like perfume, hairspray, cosmetics, antiperspirants, deodorants, any kind of aerosols, cleaning products, soaps, powders, candles, incense, pretty smelling flowers, as well as foul smelling things like paints and solvents um, and crude oils. But what I want to highlight here is when there's high air pollution like bushfires and weather changes like wind changes, temperature changes, humidity changes, because Australia, especially in this lower eastern seaboard, go through a lot of these problems. And people often think the wind is bringing some sort of pollen tr triggering their symptoms when actually it's the wind change itself doing it. And another one to highlight here is um, often the misconception of being allergic to mold when it's actually just the smell of damp and mildew causing their, tr uh, their symptoms. So it's a bit of a furphy to, if they have a IgE positive to mold when really they're just reacting to the smell of the, um, of the moisture and high humidity in the air causing that, that decaying smell. So to complicate things even further, Lots of patients have the mixed disease. They have a history of allergic rhinitis, which has been worsened by the onset of allergic rhinitis roughly about the age of 30, 35 years old. These patients commonly present with a history of their what used to be quite mild and controllable allergies worsening all of a sudden. No, no longer are they um, symptoms, their symptoms apparent only when they're cleaning their house or during pollen season, but it's all year round and frequent. They're known to be sensitized to aeroallergens. There's probably a history of allergy there, even if it was quite mild. And far too much importance is put on the positive skin prick test or the positive blood test at this stage, because the positive test does not equate to having the allergy. There must be a cause and effect associated. The history is where is really important in these people because the test is not going to give that result, that answer, sorry, that answer for you. You need to have, the have it in the history. So the complicated time is when you have to sit down and say, is this the allergen that's really driving your symptoms or has the non-allergic and the more irritant-based and environmental-based taken over the driving um, of the disease pro um, progression? And perfect examples of this is, say, a 40-year-old person with a history of very seasonal grass pollen allergies now is symptomatic all year round. We all know that grass pollen is not pollinating all year round, so something else must be driving their symptoms at the other times of year. The other um, examples I put here are the 45-year-old cleaner who is always irritated when at work, and it's very easy to think of a cleaner being irritated by house dust mite, but when in fact it's actually the cleaning products they're, meant to, they're made to use that, is tr that are triggering their symptoms. And of course, the 55-year-old secretary who is irritated by everybody's perfumes at work. She hates when people put lilies on her desk and everyone else is fed up with her <coughs> throat clearing all the time due to her post-nasal drip. So this is a very common presentation. I'm sure it rings bells in all, all, your, all of the listeners' ears. So how do we manage this? Because I just made it sound really complicated and actually it's not. So. Firstly, you have to look at, is there anything that we can remove? Is there a trigger at play that we can either lessen or remove? So occupational, a lot of people aren't going to quit their jobs, but they can get protective gear like masks to keep them from breathing in the different scents and smells or um, low, high molecular weight um, particles like flour. 
Uh, if it's drug-induced, there can be a change in medication, stabilize hormones, quit smoking, good luck with that one uh, sometimes, and of course using unscented products. Topical therapy is still the first line, and I wanted to highlight here that the combination of a glucocorticoid and an antihistamine is by far the best chance you have of alleviating this patient's symptoms. And it sort of doesn't matter of that Venn diagram of is it more allergic or more non-allergic because the medication works well for both. And as a matter of fact, in the trials looking at what helps people with non-allergic rhinitis, azelastine is actually shown on its own to have some benefit. So using it in synergy with the corticosteroid actually promotes even better symptom treatment. So that, if the cost is not prohibitive, should be the first line. And in this way, you actually don't have to decipher where the main um, trigger is coming from, whether it's an allergen or non-allergic, because you're treating both at the same time. And that's what we're aiming for here, is to get the patient's symptoms better. Saline irrigation, if you can get them to use it, will, will obviously help the um, medication work better. And they still might benefit from immunotherapy. So if you still think there's a strong allergic drive there, then it would be a good um, opportunity to refer once they have been commenced on um, initial therapy. But, and I did mention this earlier, what about the patient with suboptimal or non-steroid responsiveness? And this does happen. Capsaicin therapy. So yes, capsaicin is the main component of the capsicum or chili pepper. It is um, used already, as we know, in neurologists and psoriasis because we know it has this uh, direct effect on the TRPV1 receptor, um, which is thought to be the main receptor in the nose causing the neurogenic pathways rhinitis. So it's very effective in non-allergic rhinitis. It's very homeopathic, and there isn't even a Cochrane review on capsaicin for non-allergic rhinitis. The exact mechanism is unclear, but the thought behind it is that it binds to the TRPV receptor and renders it inactive. So how do we get a hold of capsaicin spray? Many years ago, it was once on the shelf of chemists. However, due to um, probably lack of use and lack of prescribing, it was uh, no, longer, no longer stocked. It was it's still TGA approved here as a food product, so distributors brought it in as an online sale. The two types we can get in Australia are Capsinol, which comes from the Netherlands, but they do ship to the um, Australia, and Sinol, which is the US uh, distributor. They do ship to, from Australia as they have a housing warehouse in Australia, to so the product gets delivered quite quickly. However, less capsaicin in the Sinol than there is in Capsinol, and Capsinol is more aligned with the product used in all the randomized controlled trials, at, le at least according to dose. However, there are people who respond just as good to Sinol, and it is a good step-up therapy for your real sensitive patient while they're waiting for their Capsinol to come from the Netherlands. They are both reasonably priced at less than $20 a bottle. Um, there's various dosing regimes used in the the different randomized controlled trials that were brought into that Cochrane review, but in general and in our clinic, we use the spray four to five times a day, at least 20 minutes apart until the burning sensation ceases. So that can take up five days up to two weeks, depending on how many of these receptors are active in the nose. Once this has been achieved, they, you can stop using the nasal capsaicin spray so frequently, however, you don't really want all those um, receptors to build back up again, so you try to have the patient use it 
periodically just to keep things under control. Now whether they want to use it daily for that, twice weekly, once a week, or just wait till symptoms return is up to them because it's not going to hurt to use it um, daily, it's not going to hurt to use it twice a day, and it won't hurt to use it once the symptoms come back, however they might get a little bit more stinging. But you must warn the patients about the sensation, as it will be quite a burning sensation. You have to remind them that it is not actually hurting the inside of their nose, and it is um, doing its job because you are getting that sensation. It means that there's something to actually benefit in there. Take-home messages from today's talk are both allergic and non-allergic rhinitises are common. They can hugely affect the sufferer's quality of life and are very um, common in older adults to be a mixed pattern. Non-allergic rhinitis can come in inflammatory and non-inflammatory types, and how you usually decide this is whether or not they're responding to anti-inflammatory medications like the combined intranasal corticosteroid and antihistamine treatment, or whether they'll be better off with the capsaicin spray. History is the most important diagnostic tool you can use. History is, not, is only gonna tell you whether this is person has non-allergic and allergic or either or. The skimper test or blood testing will not decipher between the two. Intranasal corticosteroids with antihistamines is by far the best treatment we have to date for both issues. However, cost must be taken into consideration. Monotherapy with an intranasal corticosteroid is still better than tablet antihistamines, and they're both gonna be far more effective. When we think about cost, there are certain um, prescription in monotherapies that cost almost just as much as the combined spray. So if they're going to pay over $40 for a monotherapy, they're far better off on a dual therapy than a monotherapy. And when you weigh up the cost of antihistamines, which are not cheap, they might be better off with the nasal spray and they might not need the antihistamines after that. And just to keep in the back of the, your mind, for those steroid non-responders, is a trial of capsaicin therapy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.